Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Confidence and self-belief can be beautiful, powerful emotions, enabling a positive life and a balanced way of living. They can be and should be used for good, but when accompanied by selfishness and egotistical arrogance, hand-in-hand in an unhealthy chain, they create a cesspit of danger. Darkness can find a way in, burrowing into its core. In Texas in 2015, a chance meeting and a single conversation turned into frightful violence in less than 12 hours. Like a pack of wolves in silent premonition, individuals intertwined and crept through the night with no forewarning to their unsuspecting target. It was their calculated decision to pick up a life and forcibly remove it, taking away their future and their children's chance of knowing them. It was a cold and heartless act that devastated lives. At the center was a performance that only one person thought was masterful. Arrogance would be the downfall, and lies would be their undoing. That's kind of one, what's your emergency? I have a home invasion. and my niece is tied up. I am at the birth of untying my niece at this particular moment. Okay, she's tied up. She is tied up and gagged. And gagged? Oh, yes, I am. Okay. I am untying her. Um, is there anybody else there? Is anybody else here? Where are the kids? We have five small infants asleep. Five small infants asleep? Yes, ranging from seven to one. Seven to one years old? Okay, ma'am. You're saying that they hit her husband in the face about five times with the butt of a pencil and drug him out. They drug him out? Yes, ma'am. Can I talk to her? Is she able to speak? Yes, ma'am. Hello? Hi, Samantha. I know you're upset. What is, uh, what is, what is your husband's name? Are you beggars? On February 20th, 2015, at 2.08 a.m., Ginger Kirsten called 911 from her cell phone. Keeping herself calm and clear, she tried to tell the dispatcher what was happening in front of her. She had received a frantic call from her sister minutes earlier, telling her to go to her niece's house around the corner from her own home. Something awful had happened. When she arrived at the house in Monticello, Titus County, in Texas, the front door had been smashed in and the house was ransacked. She made her way upstairs and found her 24-year-old niece, Samantha Wolford, on the floor of her bedroom. Her hands were tied tightly behind her back, her feet were tied together, and she had been gagged. 
On the floor next to her was her cell phone. Using only her nose and face, she had frantically pushed at the screen to try and call for help. The last number she had dialed was her mom, and that's who got the muffled, hysterical call for help in the early hours of that morning. Samantha lived in a two-story home with her husband, Ernest Abera, who was known as Ernie. They had met in 2008, when Samantha already had a set of twins with her ex-high school boyfriend. They were 10 months old when Sam and Ernie started dating, seven years later, and the couple had three children of their own, another set of twins and a young baby. This blended family of seven created a busy life. As Ginger desperately tried to untie Samantha, more details about what had happened that night were coming out. In another room next to the main bedroom, all five children were unharmed and sleeping seemingly undisturbed by the commotion going on around them. At 2.19 a.m., Titus County Sheriff's Office deputies arrived at the house. Deputy Chris Durant was the first to enter as his colleagues began searching the home. He wanted to speak with Samantha directly. Where's she at? She's upstairs. Okay, bye. Where's she at? She's coming. She was was talking to dispatch. Yeah. Uh, So, so walk me through what happened. I don't honestly know what happened. The second I was able to open my eyes, somebody grabbed me and jerked me out of the bed and slammed me down on the ground and started tying me up and putting it up to my head. He told me don't move. Okay. And over and over, and just keep fighting back. And I was just letting him do it. And what's your husband's name? Ernest Ibera. Ernest Ibera. Okay. They had black masks on, black shirts, black pants. Every inch of skin was covered, like uh, gloves. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see anything. One of them did say the name Luke. I went downstairs, and his face was covered in blood. And he had guns on top of his head. Do you know what they were hitting him with? A gun. Okay, do you remember what kind of, what the gun looked like? It was just a hand pistol. I didn't focus on the gun. I was focused on him. Okay. Are you doing okay? Do you, do you need medical attention or anything? He just slapped me in the face. If it's not bruised, I mean. Yeah. Okay. You got some redness on your face. He said, look at her, and he wouldn't look up at how's, me. How's he, the babies? They're all in bed asleep. They never mess with the kids. And then he asked him, how are my kids? Where are my kids? Punched him in the mouth with the gun and said, I ain't here for no kids, motherfucker. And they jerked his hair up and said, look at her, look at her. And I had my head pulled back. And he looked at me and he said, that's the last time you're going to see her. How many people were there? Three, maybe four. Maybe four. Okay. Okay, let's walk up here where you... you, uh... Samantha, do you want me to get your children and take them? You can't stay here. You can't stay. Oh. How did she find out that you were a... Because they did, they took his phone. They didn't take mine. I had mine hidden. Uh-huh. So I was able to... So he's got his phone? No, they have his phone. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. What's his phone number? Deputy Durant passed Ernie's phone number to his communications team to try and track its location using cell phone tower data. With Samantha and her children safe, the priority was to find Ernest Abera and the people who had invaded his home and kidnapped him. 
When he received word less than 30 minutes later, the location of Ernie's cell had been narrowed down. He tried to reassure Sam that they were making progress. Samantha and Ernie had noticeably different personalities. She was outgoing and talkative, while Ernie was quiet, more of a thinker. He was working two jobs to support his family. During the day, he was working for D-Bat, running the machines, making baseball bats. On top of that, he was working night shifts at Little Caesars Pizza in Mount Pleasant, less than 10 miles from his home. The two combined made enough money to keep the family going, but it was hard work. In November 2010, Sam started a YouTube channel she called Simply Manic. She was not someone who could be described as shy, and she enjoyed sharing her way of life as a young mom. Her videos ranged from commentary on recent news events to more personal videos about her own life and family. Some were discussions and others were rants. She was comfortable with sharing her frustrations about life with this anonymous audience. A lover of makeup, looking good was important to Sam. She even went to bed in full makeup, unable to go to sleep if she, according to her, didn't look good. Samantha was a person who enjoyed attention. She hoped her YouTube channel would grow and be a source of income to help the family. Ernie wasn't so keen. She was spending a lot of time making videos and recording. It irritated him. Sam wasn't affected by her husband's distaste. The relationship between Samantha and Ernie had not always run smoothly. In 2014, an argument at home resulted in Samantha accusing Ernie of assault. She took out a protective order against him, preventing him from approaching her or the children. A few weeks later, they got back together as a couple. Ernie completed anger management courses and the protective order was lifted. Family life returned with Ernie working to provide an income and Samantha at home caring for the children. At home focused on her YouTube channel, Samantha thought her recorded displays, rants, and conversations and opinionated and forthright videos were enough to attract a followership. She was confident and brash, and she held herself in high regard. Hey YouTubers, today a lot of shit pissed me off so you guys get to listen to it. I have two pregnancies, four kids. Just because I had kids does not mean I went and married them, believe me. The first set of twins' dad is a damn idiot. Second set, yeah, we get along and a lot better than the first set. Stupidity just pisses me off. Yes, I know, stupider is not a word. I understand that, and it makes me sound like a ding-dong, but hey, it's cool. I am who I am. But stupidity really pisses me off. There should be a vaccine made or a colony where everybody that is stupid goes and is stuck in this little place by themselves or it should be mandatory vaccinated that you have to get a shot to cure stupidity because the world really needs to be rid of stupidity. That is something that pisses me off way quicker than anything else. Hey guys, I was just letting you know that I still love you and I haven't forgot about you. I've just had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life. I'm a complete dreamer. I think that anything can be possible. Whatever your dreams are, if you work towards it, I think it's possible. And I am the biggest dreamer ever. I'm very fun. I've always wanted to be an actress. I think it is so much fun. I've been extras in movies. I've had small parts in, in uh, short films and I've done plays. I think it is 
so much fun and it is so beautiful. It is the, one of the most amazing forms of art ever to be able to express yourself that way. I think it's amazing. Not gonna light a cigarette? Oh yeah, I forgot about them. Cause you got that fucking iPad in your hands. Oh, where, but where, where, but where? At least you're paying attention. But only because it's a fucking hilarious ass episode. What? Yeah! What episode is this? Four. Four. Before sunrise, on that freezing cold February morning, forensic teams were working inside Samantha's home to collect as much evidence as they could. By 6 a.m., Samantha was taken to the sheriff's office for an interview. Inside a square room with a small table pushed up against the wall, directly opposed to the door, Samantha sat cross-legged on the chair while she waited for Deputy Durant. The interview room camera, positioned in the top corner on the opposite side of the room, focused on her. A few hours had passed since the home invasion and Samantha was calm enough to talk. The previous evening after watching television together, Ernie and Sam had gone to bed. Not long after midnight, woken in pitch darkness by hands violently pulling her out of bed and onto the floor, Sam felt the cold metal of a knife being pushed against her throat. Terrified and in fear for her life, a male voice shouted at her to not make any noise as her hands were tied behind her back. Ernie had also been dragged out of bed and was being beaten by two other figures, all dressed in black. Tape was wrapped around Ernie's mouth and nose, wrapped around his head over and over. One of the men had a gun pointed at him. Both were then dragged downstairs and into the living room. Every officer available for working on this. Somebody grabbing, somebody jerking the blankets down, which startled me. And then something being pressed against my throat. Yeah, I was trying to be as cooperative as possible because I didn't want to die. And they asked him who I was, and he said I was his wife. And they said, do you want us to have to kill her, too? And he said, no, please don't. Please don't. How are my kids? And they hit him in the mouth. Are my kids okay? And they hit him in the mouth, and he said we wouldn't fucking touch a child. And that's when they started cutting my clothes off and making me stand in front of him naked. And it just felt like they were just using me to taunt him, and... I just knew they were going to shoot him right there. They had him in the execution position on his knees. The intruders told Ernie this was happening to him because of his dad. Statements Samantha said she didn't understand. They forced Ernie to look up at Sam from his kneeled position and see how upset and scared she was. Ernie had then been dragged out of the house and out of sight as Samantha was taken back upstairs. Her feet were tied together and she was gagged before the man holding her left her there alone. Sam's account was detailed and full of emotion. Her voice broke as she described the violence she witnessed and the fear she experienced. Deputy Durant had been interviewing her for over two hours. He wasn't convinced by what she was telling him. He didn't know what she was holding back, but his experience told him she was not telling the full truth. Ernie Ibera was out there somewhere in the hands of men who seemed unafraid of using violence. His only way of finding him was by getting Sam to tell him everything. What we've got is, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what they call tracking dogs, okay, that track the scent and everything. 
I've got those over. They're probably already up at your house right now. That came from the prison in New Boston. That's what I asked that guy. One of the other deputies was, "Can I give you some Ed's clothes? Go search the area where his cell phone pinged." They're going to be tracking that area where his cell phone. They're going to be tracking the area there at the house. But what I have to make sure from you is that you have absolutely no involvement in this whatsoever. No. Okay, so you you two weren't fussing, you weren't fighting, didn't get out of hand, you didn't punch him, kick him, stab him, shoot him, nothing like that. I'm not going to find out anything any different later once we get there. Because the deputies, you know, they're out there right now, you know, basically searching your house from top to bottom for every piece of physical evidence that we can find. Anything that will help them fight him. But part of the procedure also, like I said, we're going to be, you know, checking your phone records for the last few months. You know, is there, we're going to find any kind of, you know, establish anything as far as anybody that's involved in this and uh, connected to your phone? No. Okay. You're sure about that? Yeah. I would recognize a voice that I knew. No, I'm talking about as far as you being involved in, in, in your husband's experience. No. Okay. So you had absolutely nothing to do. No, I had absolutely nothing to do with this. I would not be this cooperative if I did. Well, I mean, just because a person cooperated doesn't mean they didn't do something. Obviously, if someone wants to throw us off. Have I thought about it? Have I thought about stabbing him? Oh, more than once. Have I thought about shooting him if I had a gun? The thought is, and I'm not going to say the thought hasn't crossed my mind. He's had me to the point that I wanted to kick his ass. And that's what happened last night? No. He didn't have you to that point last night? No. We were not fighting at all. Look me in the face. I need to know the truth. Did you have anything to do with Ernie's disappearance? No. And I Did you have anything to do with his death? No. no. Death? He's dead? I don't know. That's what I'm trying to find out. Did yes, if he ain't dead, no. Do you think he's alive? I, I hope so. Too. Did you have anything to do with it? No. You had nothing to do with his no. disappearance? Nothing if, you know, if... If, God forbid, he is found deceased, did you have anything to do with it? No. Did you hire someone to do it? No. You had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it? Absolutely nothing. Samantha's cries were becoming more desperate. The reality of what was happening was no doubt sinking in. Eight hours earlier, she called her mom in a state of panic. Now, she was in an interview room with a detective who was pushing her hard for details and questioning whether she was involved in her husband's kidnapping. Sam's home held the key to what happened that night. It was the physical evidence that had the deputies questioning what this distraught wife and mother was telling them. It was the evidence that told the real story. The front door was smashed and broken, as if it had been kicked down to gain entry, but the lock on the door remained intact, smooth and still functioning. There was no damage at all. There were a few spots of blood inside the house, but very little considering the extent of the beating that Samantha described in her statements. Her memory of fine details and order of events was impressive, considering she had just survived what was likely the most traumatic experience of her life. The deputy continued to push her. He was trying to establish what was truth and what was lies. He was laying the groundwork for what years of experience told him was the most likely outcome of this case, that Ernie Ibera had been killed. The longer the interviewer went on, the more Samantha began to realize her story wasn't working. Seeking reassurance that she would not be implicated, 
she slowly began to reveal more of the truth. I think this boy's going to be dead, and I think that you know exactly who did it. Don't let fear keep you from telling the truth. Because just, if, you knew, if you knew these guys that did it, you know why they did it, does not make you guilty. But what's going to make you guilty is when we prove that you lied to us in here. But if that is the case, then I, I do know who did it and why they did it. Okay. Doesn't that make me like an accomplice? Nope. It sure don't. No, that makes you a scared mother with children. That's exactly what that makes you. The only other thing... The only other thing I know, I don't even know if I know. Okay. I've been up at the hospital with my friend Charlotte. Okay. She's got a guy there, and I swear to God, I cannot go up there that I said any of this. Okay. But the only other thing I know is venting to her and talking to her about problems like I just told you. I have a problem with talking to my friends about our problems. Mm -hmm. She's got this guy in the room with her, and he gets to talking about how a man shouldn't treat a woman that way and how you don't do those things to a person okay. and he's going to deal with the situation. Okay. I didn't take him seriously. Okay, you see, Sam, you know who did this. I just have what he said. Okay, what did he, who is this got, guy? His name's John. John who? His Facebook is Rebel, John Rebel. You know who this guy was when he came in here tonight? You know who he was? No, I honestly That does not make you, you guilty, but this is the thing. I want you to look at the hole that you've already dug yourself in. Okay? Samantha, you've done lying. I don't want to see you beat both your kid for your life. I hope you don't think I'm lying this is a game. Because this is not the kind of thing you bond out on. This is the kind of thing the DA gives you a no bond on and you go straight to prison. I put it on my kids' life. I have not done anything. So if he did this, who do you think he'd bring with him? But yesterday at the hospital, he had a guy that I do know from town with him. His name is Tay. Tay Rouse, he's a black male? Yes. I cannot guarantee that these are the right people. You know this guy did it. You know he did it. And, and, and here's the thing. But why? But Unless here's, here's he's the got serious psychological better... issues, why? Well, what did you say? Any... What did you say when he said he's going to take care of that problem? I just laughed at him. I thought he was joking. I don't know. Honest to God, I don't know. I just, I just think there's still something that you probably know that you're not telling us. And, and that does not make you guilty. That does not make you, if he's dead, that does not make you a murderer. But you've got to understand, you've got children. I Let's hope he's alive. But then all of a sudden, we find out your story, that you knew something, and then the issues of war. Guess what? It's going to be at least 20 years before you can be able to touch your kids again. They'll have grandchildren. You'll have grandchildren before you even get to touch them. They won't let you do it when you get a murder charge. Wanting to help in any way that she could was one of the biggest lies that Samantha Wolford told that morning. After more than three hours inside an interview room, still, she continued her trail of deception, determined she could convince the police she was telling the truth. As she protested her innocence and played the role of a victim, deputies were dispatched to the Titus County Regional Hospital to check out her story. Located on North Jefferson Avenue in Mount Pleasant, they wanted to speak with Sharla, the friend Samantha said she was visiting when she met John. As they approached the entrance from the parking lot, two figures exited the building. Jonathan Sanford and his brother-in-law, Jose Pons, had been visiting Sharla in the hospital ward that morning. 
As the deputies asked them to the station for questioning, they put up no resistance. Separated and placed in different interview rooms, both were surprisingly forthcoming with information. They admitted their involvement in Ernie's kidnapping and confirmed the deputies' worst fears. After being taken from his home, Ernie had been driven 30 miles away to Sand Crossing, near the Lone Star Steel Mill in the neighboring Camp County. Three men dressed in black and wearing identical black gloves had walked Ernie through the woods in the darkness. He had his hands tied behind his back and was wearing only his underwear. As they edged deeper into the trees, Ernie was shoved to the ground. He tried to get up and made it to his knees. Before he could try to stand, the muzzle of a gun was pressed to the back of his head. He knew at that moment what was about to happen. As the trigger was pulled, he slumped forward, hitting hard against the frozen ground as his life was brutally ended in cold blood. The three men with him turned and walked back to the Chevy Equinox that they had arrived in, a vehicle that belonged to Sam Wolford. Just after 11 a.m., Jonathan Sanford took deputies to the location where Ernie had been killed. At 11.30 a.m., Ernie's body was found. His injuries matched the story both Sanford and Pons were telling. A search of the scene found one bullet casing believed to have been fired from the murder weapon. There was no gun found at the murder scene. As Deputy Durant interviewed Jose Pons after the discovery of Ernie's body, the pieces of this appalling case were falling into place. The true horror and betrayal bestowed on Ernie Ibera was clear. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Hey, 
let's let's go through this. What I need to do, I've got Samantha's version. Samantha is the ringleader. Samantha is the one, and I can prove this. I've never met the kid before in my life. Never. Just like her. I met her one time, and it was yesterday. Right there in the, in the hospital parking lot. And then I seen her again last night at Octavius' house. And why, just flat out, why again do you think this happened? Because according to her, or according to what I, what I was being told, because she was tired of being out, being treated, mistreated, and being on everything. That's exactly what I was told by by Jonathan uh, Stanford. Okay. And Octavius, Octavius, uh, he hit him a couple times, but he never he never pulled the trigger, never said killing, nothing like that. I didn't either. When I specifically brought up, what if the law start questioning you about it? Talking about her, talking about uh. Samantha, and Samantha said, and I quote, I'm an actress. I'm, I, I can make anybody believe anything. Now, let's get to the truth. Samantha first met Jonathan on February 14, 2015, when her friend Sharla visited her at her house and brought her boyfriend Jonathan with her. On February 19th, just five days later, Sam visited Charlotte in the Titus County Regional Hospital, where she had been admitted for a C-section. Jonathan was also there, along with his friend, Octavius Rhymes, known as Tay. Sam began to moan about Ernie, telling him that he was a bad husband, that he beat her and the children. She said he was abusive, and he was always calling her and giving her no freedom. Outside for a cigarette, Jonathan offered a deal with Ernie for her, it was not an idea she recoiled from or rejected. In fact, she liked the idea and wanted to know how he would do it. Leaving the hospital in Sam's car that evening, Sam and her five children, Octavius Rhymes and Jonathan Sanford, went to Octavius's house in Pittsburgh, 20 minutes away. Her car was a Chevy Equinox, a family vehicle big enough for her five kids. Sanford's brother-in-law and Rhymes' friend, Jose Pons, was living at Rhymes' house at the time, in a tent in the garden with his wife. He was at the house when they all arrived at about 7 p.m. While there, they all started to plan how they were going to do harm to Ernie. Cold and callous, they had little to no regard for the father of three. While they were planning, Ernie was at home wondering where his wife and children were. He had been calling Sam on her cell phone, but she wasn't answering. He had gone out to try and find her as he was getting worried. He went into the pizza shop Little Caesars where he worked at about 9 p.m. that night. He chatted with his boss, Sandy, who he and all the staff were close to. She ran her team like a family, and they all called her Mama Sandy. Ernie told her that night he didn't know where Sam was, and she had the children with her. He said they had been arguing and were talking about getting a divorce. Sandy understood. She had witnessed numerous shifts for Ernie at night, when Sam had called him repeatedly, shouting and threatening him. Ernie wanted to leave Sam. He told Sandy he didn't want his marriage any longer, but he was worried about losing the children. He had no idea his life was in danger. The original plan hatched by Sam and the three men who would later invade his house was to get Ernie arrested for drug possession. 
Sanford and Rhymes took a trip over to the house of Rhymes' cousin to buy methamphetamine they could plant in Ernie's truck. After returning to Rhymes' home, Pons cooked food and the plan turned darker and more sinister. Sanford told Sam he could remove Ernie from her for life. All she had to do was leave her front door unlocked. Ernie's life had just been marked. He would not survive the night. Sam finally arrived home with the children, all under the age of seven, late that night. She put the children to bed, all in one room upstairs next to her bedroom. Normally, the children fell asleep in different places across the house, but that night, she wanted them all asleep and quiet in the same room. As she went to bed with Ernie asleep beside her, she made sure the front door to the house was left unlocked, just as they'd planned. After dropping Sam back home, Sanford and Rhymes made space in her car for what they intended to do. They removed the children's car seats, keeping the back seats free and empty. They drove to the local Walmart and stole three pairs of identical black gloves. They picked up Pons, gave him a set of gloves, and began the drive back over to Sam and Ernie's home. On the way, they smoked the meth they bought earlier that night. It was no longer needed to plant in Ernie's truck. And just after midnight, they pulled up outside Samantha's house. The property was quiet and dark. There were no movements inside. Sanford led the other two up the front door and inside the house. Quietly, they moved through the house and up the stairs to the main bedroom. He reaches over and yanks him out the bed. By the time, Octavius yanks her out the bed. Remind you, she's in on this whole thing the entire time. She knows about it. And all of a sudden, he says, what the fuck? Like, he's wrestling, trying to get up off the floor real quick. By the time, Jonathan reaches down. Like I said, I'm just standing there watching, making sure, you know what I'm saying, he don't have the weapons or anything. But all of a sudden, he's sitting there, they're, I'm sitting, they're fighting. They're fighting hard. Jonathan throws a pistol out, and he, he hits him with it. So was the plan to kill him right off the bat? No, I didn't know. If it was, I had no idea of it. Like I told you. I mean, because y'all went over there to do something. I went over there. He asked, like I told you, he asked me right there in front of my wife. So do you think he went over there with the know that he's going to kill him? Why are you going to go? Why are you going to do a home invasion with a 9mm? Right. I agree. We grab him and we take him him to the um, Samantha's car. Mm -hmm. We put him in the backseat. And though. Samantha whistled at us, and so Jonathan goes in, finds those up, he comes back out, he, that's when he tells me, he pulls me to the side and tells me, hey, we got to go. Her mom just called, says she's sending a friend over, we'll do it, whatever. We got to go. Or, yeah, almost a long time. And we take a left on the side road. I don't know what the road number is. Next thing you know, we're walking, we're going through the woods a little bit, so in a little bit, in a little ways back, all of a sudden, Jonathan shoves it down. He lay on the side. Jonathan's telling him, Jonathan, or Jonathan told him, later, don't move, just, just later. All of a sudden, Tate looking at me, I'm looking at him. Jonathan looks back at us. Jonathan pulls it out. He's holding it. All of a sudden, I tell him, man, dude, you're too close, dude. You fear to take the man's life because you're too close to the road. He points, he grabs it, he has it, he points it, and just bah! 
what was the how Baron stood while all this was going on? Later, just like later. Now, after he shot him, he picked him up like this by the hair, looked at him, straight dome shot. He said, What? Hey, uh, Jonathan said, Straight dome shot. What do you mean by that? Straight dome shot? Straight head shot. Ernie Abera had been violently woken from sleep inside his own home, dragged from his bed, and beaten by masked intruders. A nightmare. It was the middle of the night. No warning. No explanation. Ernie must have known his life was in serious danger. Tied up and overpowered, there was nothing he could do to defend himself. Before being taken from the house, he saw his wife terrified. He likely never knew it was in fact Sam who was behind it all. The comments made by the intruders indicating his dad was somehow to blame were false. Statements made to throw him off any scent that his wife had betrayed him. His autopsy confirmed a single gunshot as the cause of death. The medical examiner called how Ernie was murdered in an execution-style gunshot wound. This was a brutal murder against a defenseless man who never even knew the men who attacked and killed him. Never saw it coming. Sanford Rhymes and Pons simply walked away after the killing and left Ernie's body where he fell and got back into Sam's car and drove back to Rhymes' house. There they burned the clothes they were wearing to remove any evidence of what they had just done. By now the sun was up and a new day had begun. In a matter of hours, Sanford and Pons would be picked up by the police, give their stories, and find themselves arrested for murder. Rhymes was named as the third man involved in the callous hit. Not at his home when police arrived to talk with him, it would be another three days before he was located and arrested. The police search had uncovered a gun hidden underneath his house that proved to be a match for the bullet casing found where Ernie was shot and killed. When interviewed, he initially denied any knowledge of the murder after being confronted by the witness statements of both Sanford and Pons implicating him for being fully a part of the plan. His story suddenly changed. Rhymes claimed it was Jose Pons who pulled the trigger killing Ernie. He said he watched him do it and watched as Sanford got angry with him because he had wanted to do it himself. Ernie Avera had lived less than half his life. His three children now forced to grow up without him in their lives, without the chance to ever get to know him in person. His funeral was held in his home city of Mount Pleasant before he was buried in Omaha, Texas, where his grandparents lived. When Samantha's cell phone records were examined, two text messages stood out to investigators. They had been deleted from her phone, but were stored on the server. Both were sent on the night of the home invasion. After Deputy Duran informed her that technicians were using Ernie's cell phone to pinpoint his location through cell phone data, she sent the first message to Octavius Rhymes. It read, Kill Ernie's phone. Shut that shit down. Within an hour, she sent a second text. Coinciding with when she found out a possible location had been found, it read, Ditch phone. Move. In between giving sobbing statements to deputies of what had just happened inside her house, Samantha was texting the intruders, crying and shaking, giving all the outward appearance of a frightened and traumatized victim. She asked for information on the search for her husband. As soon as the deputy's back was turned, 
She picked up her cell phone and passed on the information to help Ernie's kidnappers evade capture and complete their plan. Left inside the interview room at the sheriff's office on the morning of February 20th, while deputies interviewed her accomplices and located Ernie's body, Samantha was impatient and demanding. A whiteboard was mounted on the wall of the small room, directly across from the video camera recording her every move. Seemingly bored, she writes on the whiteboard in small letters, too small to be read through the camera before cleaning them off with the eraser. By noon, her husband's body has been found in Woodland, out by Lone Star. The last 12 hours have had little impact on her. She's not shaken by the reality of what has happened and what she has been a part of. She writes a question on the board in large letters. What's going on? Before looking directly up at the camera and shrugging in an impatient demand for someone to attend her. She removes those words and replaces them with, Have you found my husband? With the same look of flippant shrug to the camera. Her demands remain unanswered when a deputy enters to check on her almost half an hour later. She is trying to ascertain if they had found Ernie's body. She wants to know why she can't have her phone. The concept of waiting another hour for further information horrifies her. Quietly, she asks in a whisper if she needs an attorney. A question the deputy rightly says he cannot answer for her. After he leaves and she is alone again, she positions herself on the floor, cross-legged, underneath the whiteboard on the wall, in direct view of the camera, whispering to herself, crying, head in hands. Her continued performance was fooling no one. Jonathan Sanford, Jose Pons, and Octavius Rhymes were all charged with aggravated kidnapping in Titus County, where Ernie's home was located and murder in Camp County, where he was killed. Samantha Wolford was arrested and charged with the same offenses. She may not have killed Ernie herself or been present when he was shot, but she was complicit in his kidnapping, actively helping his killers and planning the offense. Enough under Texas law for her to be charged with murder under the law of parties. Her pleas that she did not do anything were not going to work, Sanford and Pons pled guilty to all charges against them and were both sentenced to 50 years behind bars in April 2016. Rhymes continued to protest his innocence. His first trial was held in Titus County for the charge of aggravated kidnapping. He was found guilty and sentenced to 26 years in prison. His second trial saw him face the murder charge in Camp County. The jury found him guilty and he was sentenced to 75 years. In total, Rhymes received a sentence of 101 years. Samantha also pled not guilty and faced two trials, but hers were much further apart. She was found guilty in Titus County of aggravated kidnapping and sentenced to 50 years behind bars. Two years after Ernie was brutally killed, she stood trial in September 2017 for his murder. Three days later, she was found guilty and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Both Samantha and Rhymes have appealed their convictions. Both appeals were rejected. These men didn't know Ernie. They had never met him before. They barely knew Samantha. A level of violence and brutality that they rained down on a man they had never spoken to before is a shocking fact. It will likely never be known for sure if it was Sanford or Pons who pulled the trigger that night. Both blame each other for the shot. 
to take a man's life, that's as serious as it gets. A randomly created plan, guided and supported by a wife who said she was beaten and bruised, needed rescue. They had no evidence of her words. Instead, they entered Ernie's home within hours and began beating him before dragging him off to his death in his own wife's car. The murder happened because of the attention-seeking, selfish desires of one young woman. A self-belief so strong, she placed incredible risks upon it. Her ability to act, to portray a terrified woman, terrorized in her own home, and desperate for news of her kidnapped husband, she believed was infallible. She believed without a second thought she could convince experienced police deputies that she could fool them into believing her story. The stakes could not be higher. This was the life of her husband, the father of three of her young children. She was trying to cover up his murder, and she failed. For all of her acting, her sobs and cries and the right places trying to show her fear and terror, the men who carried out this horrible act told deputies everything the moment they were asked to come to the police station. That gives them no pardon for their part in their heinous crime. Samantha Wolford believed she was an actress, truly the main character of her own story. She believed she could convince anyone of anything, yet her performance had no credibility. Her skills were not masterful as she thought. Behind bars for the rest of her life will give her an abundance of time to consider her actions. Time she did not grant her husband. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.